At least, he added, no one can blame the general for the Naraka disaster. True, said Vertax, his tone ironic. Truer than you might imagine. He glanced at Kang from the corner of his eye. Kang understood immediately, although it was something he had never before considered. Maranta had been made a general in Lord Ariacus's army, but the title had been a hollow one. As a draconian, General Maranta had not been allowed to give orders to any human, not even the lowest private in the worst company of scraggly reserve foot soldiers. General Maranta had not been given a field command, he had not been trusted to lead armies, He'd been sent out on show to keep the draconians content, thinking one of their own was a high-ranking officer. In reality, General Maranta had been assigned to meaningless duty, plotting strategies that were never used, or ordering the dispositions of equipment and supplies that had already been ordered by some lower-ranking human. As an Orak, a powerful magic user, General Maranta had probably even been warned he was not to use his magic. General Maranta had knuckled under, and had held his post throughout the war. But perhaps General Maranta had not been the obedient, subservient draconian he had appeared. General Maranta had survived the fall of Naraka, whereas his commander, the proud and puissant Lord Ariacus, had perished. Kang felt suddenly proud of the cunning old Orak who had been shrewd enough to foresee disaster and made his own plans accordingly, plans that not only saved himself, but many hundreds of his loyal troops. Kang would have given a great deal to know the true story of what had transpired at Naraka, doubted he ever would. There are some war stories that old soldiers keep locked in their hearts, never to tell. The three officers approached the Sivak guards, Kang had assumed that discipline might be good, but informal, considering that these draconians had slept, fought, eaten, and worked together for over thirty years. He was therefore considerably astonished to see both Vertex and Yakono pronounce name and rank, and even give the password for the day. He was more astonished to see the Sivak guards look them over suspiciously, intently. Satisfied, one of the Queen's own said, you may enter. The general is expecting you. The Sivak turned cold eyes upon Kang. This is the officer of the engineering regiment. Commander Kang, First Dragon Army Engineers, Kang said, thinking it best to salute. The Sivaks looked him up, and the Sivaks looked him down, inside out and sideways. Kang had never before undergone such intense scrutiny, even the one time he'd been briefly held prisoner by Salamnic knights. He was starting to get a bit angry. They were all the same species, for God's sakes, when one of the Queen's own gave a nod. You may enter, Commander Kang. However, the Sivak halted Kang as he started to walk toward the double doors. I must ask you for your weapons, sir. What? Kang was on the verge of blowing up like one of Slith's keg bombs. Vertax laid a warning claw on his arm. We all do it, Kang, he said quietly. It's the general's custom, a holdover from Naraka. Recalling what he'd heard of the end of Naraka, draconians turning on draconians, killing each other, Kang reached behind his back and removed the battle-axe he wore on a harness between his wings. He'd worn the axe in that place for so long that, like his wings, it had become a part of him. 
He felt as if he'd lost a limb when he handed it over to the Seabat guard. The Queen's own knocked a certain way on the doors. Kang heard what sounded like a heavy bar being lifted. The double doors swung open on well-oiled hinges, and the officers entered. Kang, glancing up, was astounded to see a crudely made, rickety, and rusty portcullis hanging over the doorway. Kang cringed. If that portcullis was as poorly designed as the rest of the fort, he wouldn't have been one of those Sivak guards standing beneath it for all the jewels in the Dark Queen's crown. The doors shut behind them with a boom. Inside, the guard slid the massive solid oak bar back into place. No one and nothing was going to come inside that door if they didn't want it to, not without a struggle at least. The interior of the building was cool and dark, so dark that Kang had to wait for his eyes to adjust. No torches burned, no lamps were lit. When he had gained his night vision, he stared around him in astonishment. He would later describe the interior to Slith. I'll swear, Slith, that they built the entire structure in one solid block of mud and stone, and then they went inside and tunneled it out. Sir, Slith said, moderately disapproving, have you been dipping into the Draco's spirits again? Even if I had, I couldn't have dreamed this one up, Kang retorted. It's a maze, a goddamned honeycomb. Arched tunnels lead every which way except the way you want to go, seemingly. I would have never found the path that led to the center if it hadn't been for Vertax and Yakano. And the place is huge. I don't know how many rooms are inside it. No one knows. Vertax couldn't even tell me. The number changes. Sometimes rooms are blocked up for no reason and new ones opened. And you know who lives inside that massive building, Slith? Just General Maranta. Just him? Slith was surprised. Just him, Kang said. The Queen's Own have their own quarters near the HQ, but not inside it. So General Maranta lives in his own fort inside his own fort, said Slith. Fort inside a fort. The very thought Kang was thinking as he walked deeper into the hollowed-out interior of this extremely strange building. Kang never entered any building but that he marked the entrances and the exits. He never went in a place where he could not quickly find his way out, should that become necessary. Instinctively he began to take note of the various turnings, one right, one left, two left, and so on. But after the twenty-eighth right turn and the thirty-seventh left, not counting the weird corkscrew tunnel and the serpentine corridor that doubled back on itself, he was forced to admit that he was thoroughly confused. The only way he could have escaped this place was to fly straight up and punch his head through the ceiling. And since the ceiling was some ten feet above his head, and was, according to Vertax, shored up by heavy wooden beams with another layer of stone and mud on top of that, Kang figured he'd better stick closely to his guides. It was then that Vertax told him, still keeping his voice low, for this entire cave-like structure must be a veritable echo chamber, that General Maranta lived and worked here alone. He's not a recluse or anything like that, Yakuno hastened to add over his shoulder. The corridor was too narrow for them to walk side by side. He inspects the troops periodically. Officers report to him on a daily basis. You'll be doing that too, Kang. Here? Kang couldn't imagine coming into the bastion every day. He didn't like it. He felt cramped and stifled, as if the mud walls were closing in on him. His wings would have brushed against the walls on either side if he hadn't kept them tightly folded. 
He scratched at an itch on his back. He missed his axe. No, not here. This is a rare honor you're being accorded, Kang, Vertak said. The general has a command tent set up outside. We meet there. He keeps abreast of what's happening in camp, knows what's going on with everyone and everything. At this, Yakano coughed into his hand, cast Vertax a significant glance. Looking uneasy, Vertax quickly changed the subject, launching into a discussion of how many months it had taken to build this place, what tools they'd used, how the general himself had designed the building. So, Kang thought, the general has spies even among his own troops. Not surprising, he thought sadly. The Orak had seen treachery enough in Naraka. Kang was wondering if they were going to walk all night. His empty stomach made protesting sounds demanding to be filled. The officers rounded a bend, climbed a set of five stairs, and there at the top was another set of massive iron-bound doors and two more sivaks. This time, however, the Queen's own asked no questions. After a brief inspection to make certain that the officers carried no weapons, the sivaks knocked on the door. Commanders Siakano and Vertax, and Commander Kang of the First Dragon Army Engineers, here to see the general, said the Queen's own to his counterpart on the other side of the door. A moment passed for the message to be relayed, and permission granted, and then the door swung open. Accompanied by the other officers, Kang stepped inside. Light, bright light, dazzling light, struck Kang a physical blow, as if he'd been hit between the eyes. The light might have come from the sun itself, had that orb been able to tunnel its way inside the bastion. Half-blinded, Kang had to wait for his eyes to once again adjust to his new surroundings. He felt himself vulnerable at that moment. The feeling made him nervous. At the back of his mind, he was thinking how difficult, if not impossible, it would be for an enemy to penetrate the bastion. Narrow corridors forcing the troops to walk single file, twisting corridors, where they would easily find themselves lost. Undoubtedly there had been slits in the walls for archers, although he had been too discombobulated to look for them. Dark halls one minute, brilliantly lit rooms the next would leave an enemy blind for critical seconds. The general was very well protected, not only by the queen's own, but by the building he had himself designed. This is the audience hall, said Vertax. General Maranta could have held audience with every draconian in Kang's regiment and have room to spare. The chamber was completely round, open, unfurnished with the exception of a single chair that stood on a raised platform at the far end. The queen's own remained by the door, unmoving. No other draconians except themselves were in the room. The walls were smooth, windowless, no doors besides the one they had entered. There was only one way into this chamber and one way out. The brilliant light came from an enormous censer, an ornate lamp in which incense was burned. The censer was suspended twenty feet over his head. Forgetting himself, Kang stared. The censer was certainly huge, and must have been heavy, for it hung from an iron chain whose links were as big around as Kang's fist. The censer was made of wrought iron that shone black against the brilliant yellow light of the aromatic gums that burned inside. The ironwork had been formed in the image of dragons that circled the lamp. Silhouetted against the glow, 
their wings extended to touch on either side, their tails coiled to meet at the base. I see you are admiring my lamp, Commander, said a voice echoing across the vast chamber. Kang gave a start. He looked toward the raised platform. A moment ago that platform had been empty. He could have sworn it. Now an aurac sat in the chair, very much at his ease, as if he'd been sitting there for the last few hours. The queen's own thumped the butts of their spears on the floor, called everyone to attention. The officer snapped a salute. Kang's scales clicked a reaction to his surprise. He drew himself to stiff attention. "'Begging the general's pardon, sir,' Kang said, wondering if the aurac had dropped out of the ceiling. He could find no other explanation for this sudden appearance. "'I meant no offense.' No one said a word. The silence was awkward. Kang saw them all staring at him, felt some sort of explanation was due. The lamp is truly remarkable, sir. I've never seen workmanship like that. Nor will you again, Commander, General Maranta said pleasantly. The making of such beautiful and magical artifacts is a lost art. I am pleased that you appreciate fine-quality workmanship. The censer came from the Dark Queen's temple at Naraka, one of the few pieces to be salvaged after the explosion. I found the censer lying several miles away from the wreckage of the temple. The ironwork was bent and twisted, but easily restored. The magical spell that creates the light remained. Remains to this day. The general glanced up at the lamp. I thought the magic might vanish with the gods, but as you see, it glows as brightly as it did before our queen deserted us. Yes, sir, Kang said. He was never comfortable discussing his queen's departure. He still felt the wound in his soul, still felt betrayed. He hoped the general would change the subject. General Maranta sat on his dais like a king on his throne, Kang thought, wondering uneasily, does this Orak consider himself a king? As Kang looked more closely, however, the concern left him. The chair on which General Maranta sat was just that, a chair, plainly made and unadorned. The chair appeared to have been designed for comfort rather than to impress or intimidate. The chair had to be large because General Maranta was large, the largest Orak Kang had ever seen. General Maranta was a draconian elder, the only elder Kang had ever met, and probably by now the last in existence. The elders were the very first draconians produced from the stolen eggs of the good dragons. After that initial batch, their creators, the black-robed wizard Drakart, Whirlish, a cleric of Takesis, and the red dragon Harkiel, had waited some time before conjuring up more. They wanted to see how the experiment turned out. The experiment was a success, providing a race of warriors fierce, intelligent, and capable. When this became apparent, the corruption of the good dragon eggs proceeded apace. The difference in ages between the first hatching and those that followed would not have been reckoned much in human years, a few months at most. But among the draconians the distinction was there and they respected it and perhaps the difference in age was more drastic than any might have imagined. The aurac that Kang looked upon was large and obviously still hale and strong, but Kang noted signs of aging, 
signs that unnerved him. Kang wondered in dismay if this is what he would see in himself if he looked into a mirror. General Maranta's scales still retained their golden sheen, but it was not the brilliant sheen of Thessic's scales. She shone in the light like a new minted coin. By contrast, General Maranta's gold appeared dull, dingy. He was slightly stooped as he sat in the chair, his head thrust forward from between hunched, rounded shoulders. The muscles in his arms were starting to sag, probably from disuse, and he had developed a slight paunch around his middle. The skin around his eyes was wrinkled and pouchy. General Maranta's eyes were like the glowing censer. They hit Kang a blow that punched through clear to his soul. His first fleeting feelings of pity for the aging Orak were knocked away, replaced by awe, respect, and a quite natural and proper fear. Kang remained standing awkwardly at attention. His shoulder wound itched and burned beneath the bandage. He couldn't put his full weight on his injured leg and was forced to shift position every so often to maintain his balance. All the while he was being studied by this formidable orac. Had Kang's military demeanor been less rigid, he might have flinched. He had nothing of which to be ashamed. He was proud of his men, proud of their accomplishments, proud of himself. As for secrets, he had only one, but he intended to reveal it, and once that was done, he would have laid himself bare to those probing eyes. Seemingly satisfied by his inspection, General Maranta rose from his chair and returned the officer's salute. Welcome, Commander Kang, welcome. Welcome to my fortress. This draconian was a true leader, one who could not only intimidate but inspire, one to be feared and at the same time admired. Kang could understand how these draconians had survived Naraka. The general had willed it would be so. Sir, thank you, Kang said. The 1st Dragon Army Engineering Regiment is at your disposal, sir. Very good, Commander, said General Maranta. I am, of course, glad to be able to add two hundred new warriors to our ranks, but that is not the only reason I am pleased to welcome you. You represent hope. You are proof of what I have been saying all along. Other draconians remain in this world, in large numbers, perhaps. You and your men are the first we have found. I have long said there are others, General Maranta repeated, but some have disagreed. His gaze went to Vertex and Yakano, still standing at attention. I am glad to have been proven wrong, General, said Vertex. Yes, well, let this be a lesson to you, the General said. He waved a clawed hand. At ease, gentlemen, at ease. Seating himself again in the chair, he beckoned Commander Kang to advance. Kang marked forward three paces, halted at the foot of the dais, he was quite close to the general, uncomfortably close to the jabbing eyes. I have received unsettling news about you, Commander, General Maranta said. I require an explanation. If this is about my second slith, sir, Kang said uneasily, I can assure you that he deeply regrets his actions, and that he will not cause... Slith? General Maranta was puzzled. I don't recall any slith. No, no, what I have to say regards the fact that you have an orac among your ranks, and yet 
You are the commanding officer. Please explain. Kang understood. Draconians maintained a social strata, just as did dragons, humans, elves, and all the other races. In the normal scheme of things, an Orak would rank far above a Bozak. And although experience had come to dictate that Bozaks made the best field commanders, Kang would have been required to defer to an Orak, much as a human general would defer to a human king. Kang definitely had some explaining to do. He had been going to wait to reveal his grand news, perhaps request an audience alone with the general, but if his ability to command was being questioned, he needed to clear up the confusion immediately. The best way, he thought, was to be straightforward. Forthright. Sir, I am in command because the Aurak, although she appears full-grown, is only recently hatched. She is little more than a child. Kang made his statement and then shut his mouth on it, saying no more, waiting for the reaction. The implication of what he had said was of such amazing import that the three draconians looked as if they had been struck by a lightning bolt from a cloudless sky. She and child, words never before used in association with draconians. Vertax and Yakuno forgot their discipline and openly gaped. General Maranta drew in a sharp breath, the red eyes narrowed to the surgeon's knife, slit Kang's head open, sliced up his brain. Kang almost winced with the pain. He stood his ground, confident in himself, secure in the truth. General Maranta sank back in his chair, regarded Kang with an expression that was thoughtful and troubled. You don't believe him, do you, sir? Vertax demanded. He turned to Kang. I do not mean to call you a liar, Commander, but I think it is probable that you have been deceived. No draconian females were ever produced. Yes, they were, said General Maranta, suddenly and unexpectedly. Sir? Vertex turned his astonished gaze upon him. They were produced in the first batch, at the same time that we elder males were made, but the females were not permitted to hatch. But why, sir? Yakano asked. Can't you guess? General Moranta said. His voice was stern, his tone bitter. Drakart and Whirlish saw the creatures they had created, and they were proud and pleased, but they were also afraid. We, the creation, proved to be more powerful than our creators. The soft skins feared us, feared what might happen to them should our numbers grow and so they arranged it so that our numbers would never grow. We would live to serve them, live to die for them, and when all of us were dead, there would be no more to rise up to threaten or accuse them. The eggs bearing the future of our race were taken away, and so we supposed destroyed. Those of us who knew were made to swear an oath never to reveal our knowledge to anyone. The curse of Tachesis was laid upon us if we broke that oath, and to my knowledge none of us ever did. To what purpose, what good would there be in speaking of what had been irrevocably lost? Not lost, sir, Kang said softly. Hidden. Hidden where they would never be found until they were meant to be found. And how did you find them, Commander? General Morantis's red eyes glittered. Takesis led us to them, sir, Kang said simply. 
perhaps one of her last acts in this world. And why would Tachesis grant this valuable gift to you, Commander? The general was displeased, jealous. Kang guessed what he was thinking. Such a gift should have been granted to an Orak of General Maranta's rank and stature, not to a lowly Bozak engineer. Kang couldn't blame the general. It is what he himself would have felt under like circumstances. Kang explained how he had come by the discovery of the females. He told about how the dwarves were intent upon reaching the eggs first and destroying them. He told about the wild race through the caves of Thorbarden. He skimmed modestly over the battle with the fire dragon and the collapse of the cavern on top of him, dwelt instead on the thrill of the discovery of the box of cherished eggs. The tale took some time, but no one appeared in the least bored. At the end, General Maranta was grudgingly satisfied. So it was simply a matter of being in the right place at the opportune time, he said. Yes, sir, said Kang, glad to leave it at that. Vertax and Yakano were regarding Kang with open admiration. Kang fidgeted, embarrassed, wished they wouldn't. General Maranta had taken notice, and it was obvious to Kang that the general was annoyed. He was accustomed to being the one admired, and he apparently did not like to share. Kang sighed inwardly. Without meaning to or intending to, he had incurred the general's wrath, and he'd done so in his first few hours in the fortress. And so, Commander Kang, General Maranta was saying, it appears that in opening our gates to you, we have opened the gates to our own doom. Sir? Kang looked up, startled. Her Majesty's gift, which you are so proud of having acquired. General Maranta began, laying cold emphasis on the word. Kang winced. That charge was unjustified. He had been a faithful worshipper, rewarded for his faith. He thought he had made that clear. He held his tongue, however, kept it curled tight between his clenched jaws. Is, as are most of Her Late Majesty's gifts, extremely dangerous to the recipient, General Maranta continued. I had been wondering why an army of goblins and hobgoblins would bother attacking a small and insignificant force of draconian bridge-builders. Now that question is answered. Yes, sir, was all Kang could say. I am afraid that perhaps you are right, sir. I can't help but wonder why. Because we are a threat, Commander, General Maranta thundered. We were a threat fifty years ago, and we remain a threat today. That is why they want to kill your females, and you have led the enemy here to us. Kang ventured to protest. But the goblins ran away, sir. They're probably still running. And anyhow, they wouldn't attack this fortification. Gobbles are cowards, all know that. They dared to fight us because our numbers were few and we were half-starved and worn out, and they thought we would be easy pickings. But to attack a position that is well-fortified and well-defended is not their way, sir. It didn't used to be, perhaps, General Maranta returned coldly. But apparently that has changed. He gestured to one of the Sivak guards who had been standing silent and unmoving. The Queen's own removed a scroll of vellum and walked forward to present it to the general. I have here, said General Maranta, brandishing the scroll but not opening it, 
A report from my reconnaissance officer. The goblins have not run away. Far from it. They are regrouping, resupplying. Their ranks are increasing in number. In my opinion, the only reason they haven't attacked us before now is that they are waiting for additional reinforcements. General Maranta leaned out of his chair, thrust his head forward. Kang had to hold himself rigid to keep from taking an involuntary step backward away from the anger in the red eyes. Make no mistake, Commander Kang. You have brought your war to us. I am sorry, sir, Kang said. I had no such intention, I assure you. If you will grant us this night to rest, we will be on our way before dawn. I had not planned to remain here in any case. Basically, we are on our way to Tear, a city we discovered on a map. Not so fast, Commander Kang. General Miranda snapped his teeth. You're not going to leave us to face goblins while you run away with the females. You misunderstand me, sir, Kang returned with dignity. We have placed you in danger. My only thought in suggesting that we depart was to draw the goblins away from the fort. They would leave you in peace. We ask only that the females could remain under protection. General Maranta waved him to silence. He glared at Kang a moment. Then the general's outrage appeared to dissipate. The Orak's shoulders sagged. Sinking back in his chair, he shook his head. Perhaps I did misjudge you, Commander, General Maranta said with a rueful smile. You must forgive me. We have lived here in relative peace for the last thirty years. It grieves me to think that we might lose all that we have worked so hard to build. My men and I will be glad to use our skills to strengthen the fortifications, sir, Kang said, mollified by the general's conciliatory tone. Kang could understand the Orak's feelings of apprehension. He recalled his grief and sorrow when the dwarves had burned his own town to the ground. If you want us to, we will man the walls and help defend. Good, Commander, good, said General Maranta. He cast an oblique glance at the Queen's own, who marched forward. Apparently, the interview was coming to an end. So long as the threat remains, Kang finished his sentence, laying emphasis on the words. He was not going to abandon his dream. Once the goblins are destroyed, we plan to continue on north to Tear, sir. He wanted there to be no misunderstanding about that. We will see, Commander said General Maranta in placating tones. You might come to like it here. We may be only five thousand strong now, but those numbers will grow. Our ranks will swell. Kang was considerably alarmed. Sir, he said, the females are, as I have said, little more than children. And even if there were, um, little draconians, he could feel his blood burn beneath his scales. It would be years, maybe many years, before they were grown. What do you take me for, Commander? General Maranta interrupted with a chuckle. Some lame-brained gully dwarf? I wasn't counting on your blasted females to provide me with warriors. We found you, didn't we? There are probably more units like yours, perhaps whole regiments wandering around out there. They've been lying low, but now that the Chaos War has decimated the ranks of our enemies and left them weak, more lost draconians like yourselves will arrive here. General Maranta nodded sagely. 
You can bet steel on it. He rose to his feet. The officers came to attention, saluted. Turning on their heels, they marched out the way they had come, led by the Sivak guard wearing the colors of the Queen's own. Damned odd, was Kang's comment to himself regarding the interview. Damned odd. Chapter 7 Damned odd, Kang repeated again, except this time he said it out loud, and he said it to Slith. What's odd about it, sir? Slith asked. Kang took a moment to respond, due to the fact that his mouth was filled with goat meat. This is good, he mumbled. Slith nodded. The wild goat was tough and stringy, but tasted as good to the half-starved draconian engineers as beefsteaks served at a Palantian lord's feast. The cooks had watched in admiration, disbelief, and some alarm to see Kang's troops gorge their way through a week's rations at one sitting. Slith's offer to form a hunting party to replenish the fort's supply of goat meat had been accepted with pleasure and relief. "'What's odd about it?' Kang repeated, chewing and thinking. He'd been trying to sort it out himself. "'I'll tell you what's odd.' General Maranta hasn't seen a strange draconian in this fort in over thirty years until we show up, and now he's talking about expecting more to arrive at any time. Where's he expect them to come from? Rain down out of the skies? Well, sir, the general does have a point. The world is in a state of confusion. Everywhere we go, some new rumor springs up about who's in control of what where. There was that tavern-keeper who told us that the Dark Knights are in control of both Palanthus and Qualinesti. The Dark Knights, ruling the capital cities of both their greatest enemies, the Salamnics and the Elves. Who would have believed it? I'm not sure I do, Kang muttered. Then there was that bizarre story we heard from the drunken Kender Gloth captured, about monster dragons fighting and killing and eating other dragons. If even half of what we've heard is true, Slith concluded, then the world's turned upside down and maybe the turmoil will shake out a few draconians who've been in hiding all these years. Maybe. Kang was unconvinced. If there are draconians on the move, why would they show up here in this out-of-the-way place? We would have marched right past it, not twenty miles away, and never known of the fort's existence if the goblins hadn't dumped us in General Maranta's lap. Bet good steel on it, the general had said. I'd be glad to take that bet, except that I haven't seen a steel piece in more than a year now. Kang shoved his plate aside and heaved a deep sigh of satisfaction. His belly was full. He would sleep the night, undisturbed by someone waking him to tell him that gobbos were attacking. Maybe it is odd, Slith admitted. But then generals have a right to be odd, sir. Considering everything General Maranta's been through, it would be strange if he wasn't. I suppose you're right. Make your report, Kang said, washing down the goat with a mug of sour, tepid ale. He poured a mugful for Slith, slid it across the table. The troops are bivouacked on the parade ground over by the west wall. Prokel offered to let our troops bunk with the others in the fort, but I figured you'd want to keep the regiment together. Kang swallowed, nodded, indicated his approval. I set the watch, Slith said in an undertone. 
not on the walls, of course. Prokel said that we should rest tonight and he'll work our men into the guard detail roster tomorrow, but I thought it would be best if discipline was maintained. Quite right, Kang said. Discipline be damned. The real reason Slith had set the watch was that he didn't trust his fellow draconians. Kang sighed inwardly. In some ways, Slith was as bad as General Maranta. But then, Kang reminded himself, he hadn't survived this long by taking anything for granted. I told them to be discreet, Slith added. Kang approved. No sense in offending Prokel or any of the other officers. And get this, sir, Slith said. There are no taverns in this fort. I believe it, said Kang, grimacing at the ale. This stuff is horrible. Yes, sir. First infantry raided a granary and brewed this from the wheat. Horse piss would taste better. As it turns out, they're down to their last keg. We're going to need supplies when we leave, and as you say, we don't have the steel to pay for them. But we could barter. I could set up the distillery, make some dragon's breath liquor. But there's nothing to distill, Kang protested. We used up the last of that stolen corn. I've been thinking, sir, Slith said. One thing we have a lot of around this fort is cactus. With your permission, I'd like to try to see if we could use cactus to make our brew. Cactus? Kang was doubtful, but he could think of no better solution. Well, I guess you might as well try it. I don't suppose cactus could taste any worse than fermented mushrooms. Yes, sir. I'll harvest some first thing tomorrow. You said that the females are bedded down safely for the night, Kang said. That was the first question he'd asked on his return from his meeting with the general. Did they get enough to eat? Yes, sir. I saw to that myself, sir. I've doubled their guard. Slith poured himself another ale, shrugged and shook his head. They're not very happy with me, sir. Can't say that I blame them. That shed is small, and they're crowded in their nose to wingtip. They were all set to go out and explore the fort. You didn't let them, Kang demanded, alarmed. No, sir, Slith was offended. Of course not, sir. I told them they had to stay inside for their own good. Might be goblins lurking about. Inside the fort? Yeah, I know, but it was all I could come up with, Slith said. They were mad as hell. Shanra tried to bite me, or maybe it was Hanra. Slith grinned. The Sivak twins were favorites of his, though he could never tell them apart. I thought this time they were going to rebel for sure, sir, and there was only me and Kressel to stop them, and half the time he takes their side. But then Fanrar stepped in and told them that if they went roaming about, you'd be worried, and that you needed your rest, what with your wounds and all. They settled right down after that. Before I left, Fanrar wanted to know how you were, if you'd fainted again, if you were going to have a good meal. She really thinks a lot of you, sir. They all do. I know, Kang said, embarrassed and humbled. I wish I deserved it. Everything I've tried to do for them seems to turn out wrong. This dream of founding our own city, it's cost so many of the boys their lives. Maybe I was foolish to even consider it. If we'd stayed where we were, up in the mountains... We'd all be dead by now, sir, Slith said flatly. 
If it wasn't dwarves trying to kill us, it would have been elves or humans. You know that, sir. You made the right decision. When we reach Ter, we'll turn that city into the most impregnable place on Kryn. No one will dare attack us then. We'll be able to live in peace like we've planned. There had been a time when Kang had wondered if Draconians could ever live peaceful lives. Born and bred to be warriors, Draconians might be doomed to fight and claw their way through life until death came to them in the form of spear or arrow or sword thrust. But this past year, watching his troops tend to the young females, laughing at their antics, taking pride in their accomplishments, teaching them and protecting them, Kang knew for certain that he and other Draconians could live in peace. If we reach Tear, he said gloomily. We'll make it, sir. This stop-off is only temporary. I'm not so certain, Slith. Kang glanced around. The two were the only Draconians in the mess hall. The cook and his helpers were in the back, rattling pots and banging pans, cleaning up. They made a considerable racket, but Kang guessed that they were keeping him and Slith under surveillance. He kept his voice low. And it's not Gabos I'm worried about, at least for the time being. You didn't see the gleam in the general's eye when he started talking about us getting to like it here. He wants us to help strengthen the fortifications, and you and I both know that there's a good six months' work to be done around here, if not longer. Once the gobbos are settled, I plan to leave, and I don't think General Maranta's going to like that one bit. He's a general, sir, said Slith softly, but he's not our general, not any more. The war's been over a long, long time. You're right, said Kang uneasily. But I'm afraid that the men won't see it that way. And how will it look to them if I defy a superior officer? What kind of example am I setting? If I refuse to obey him, how can I ask them to obey me the next time I issue an order? No. Kang shook his head. That's not the answer. We'll have to figure out something else. In the meantime, First Light, have the troops start building temporary quarters. Just make sure everyone knows that they're temporary. If we say often enough that we're leaving, maybe they'll start getting used to the idea. And now I guess I'd better go check on the females. Kang stood up, but his knees buckled, and he unintentionally sat right back down again. No, sir, said Slith, sliding his arm underneath his commanders he helped Kang stand. I'll check on the females. You're going to bed, sir. No arguments. Kang might have argued, but he was too tired. Bed sounded too good. He allowed Slith to help him to the bivouac area where his troops lay sleeping on the ground. Kang had to look hard to see those on guard duty, but he found them eventually, crouched in the deep shadows cast by the rickety wall. As for Kang, he would not have to sleep on the ground. Slith had seen to it that the commander's tent was pitched, the commander's cot set up. Kang hobbled inside. He collapsed onto the cot on his belly and didn't move. Slith removed his commander's battle axe. Unstrapping it from between his shoulder blades, Slith stood the axe beside Kang's bed within easy reach. Good night, sir, Slith said quietly, and left the tent. The only answer was a gentle snore. The Draconian engineers were up ahead of the sun, 
They ate an early breakfast and began building their quarters before the break of day. Fonrar was the first of the females to wake up, shaken out of her sleep by the bellows of the Bozak smithy, badgering his assistance as they set up the portable forge. She recognized Slith's voice calling out the work details, assigning each to a particular task. The sounds of hammering, sawing, thudding, and the rhythmic chanting of the work crews rose with the sun. The storage shed in which they were quartered had no windows, but there were several knotholes in the planks. Fonrar placed her eye to one of these and peered outside. The day had dawned fine, not a cloud in the blue sky. The breeze was fresh and clean, crisp and cool, and made her nostrils twitch. What's going on? came a voice at her side. They're setting up camp, Fonrar reported. Let me see, Thesic said. Fonrar moved aside obligingly, and Thesic put her eye to the hole, only to stumble backward with a cry. She tumbled over a sleeping Boz, who grumbled and lashed out with an irritated kick. What is it? Fonrar asked, alarmed. Thesic gasped, pointed at the knothole. Someone is looking in. Putting her eye to the knothole, Fonrar found a red eye peering back in. More eyes appeared at other knotholes. The sounds of whispers and grunts and shuffling feet could be heard clearly. Then came shouts. Gloth's angry voice lifted above the others. Clear out, you Dracos! What do you think you're doing? You look like peeping Kender, the lot of you. Shove off before I put you all on report. Kressel, I'll have that trooper's name. Wake everybody, Fonrar ordered Thesic. Thesic roused the other slumbering females, shaking and kicking them awake. Climbing over her grousing sisters and cousins, Fonrar managed to reach the door to the shed and banged on it urgently. Yes, ma'am, came a voice. What's going on? Fonrar demanded. Nothing, ma'am, said the voice. Everything's under control, ma'am. Go back to sleep. Fonrar drew in a seething breath. One would think she was newly hatched. She was about to lose her temper, start shouting, then realized that there was an easier way. I have to go to the latrine, Fonrar said, looking back at the other females to make certain they were listening. We all do. The other females caught on quickly. I have to go, they piped up. Hurry, I can't wait. Fonrar gave the door an experimental shove, found it barred. She sighed deeply and in anger. They were little better than prisoners. The guard was one of the new guards Slith had assigned, and he was not prepared for the crisis, apparently, for she heard him ask distractedly what he was supposed to do now. There came a sound of thumps and shouts and confused scuffling. The eyes disappeared abruptly from the knotholes. After a moment, Fonrar heard Kressel's voice, slightly out of breath. I'll take over now. What's the problem? We have to use the latrine, Fonrar said sternly. We have to go! We have to go! The boz were chanting loudly now, causing the walls of the rickety shed to rattle and shake. You can go in groups of five under guard. When five come back, the next five can go. Kressel? Fonrar growled threateningly. I'm sorry, Fon, he said, but it has to be this way. You'll see why. Fonrar made a motion with her hand. The Boz ceased their chant. The females waited expectantly for further orders. Shanra, you and Hanra are with me. You too, Thes. I'm coming too, ma'am, said one of the Boz. Very well, Riel. Fonrar said. 
Riel was the commander of the Baas, who made up the largest number of the females. She had appointed herself Fawn's bodyguard, in imitation of the Baas who guarded Commander Kang. All right, Kressel, Fonwar said. The first five are ready to go. A bar scraped, a key rattled. Fonrar kept tight control on her resentment. No use lashing out at Kressel, he was just obeying orders. The door swung open. Fonrar stepped out into the fresh air, took a couple of steps, and halted, staring in amazement. The shed was surrounded by hundreds of strange draconians. They had been peering into the shed, apparently, but had been driven back and were now being kept at a distance. Engineers formed a cordon around the shed, using spears or the flat of their blades to whack anyone who tried to venture in too close. Completely taken aback, Fonrar looked questioningly at Kressel. These Dracos have never seen females before, she said quietly. They're curious. Daunted by the hundreds of pairs of staring eyes, the other females clustered around Fonrar. I don't have to go that bad said Shanra uneasily. Me neither, said her sister. We're going, said Fonrar sternly. She might need to use this ruse again and didn't want it weakened. March! The females formed up in line and marched in step to the area where Slith had, with admirable foresight, ordered the engineers to dig latrine pits for the females and throw up a screening wall around them. Their guards accompanied the females every step of the way, and so did the hundreds of watching eyes. The males didn't hoot or shout or make any sort of disturbance. They simply stared. I don't like this, Thez, said Fonrar sharply on their way back to the shed. She glowered at the staring draconians. It's insulting. Is it? Thezik had been traipsing along idly beside her friend, a dream-laden gaze fixed on the distant mountains. Now Thezik came out of her dream and glanced around. Fonrar had the annoying feeling that her friend had only just now noticed something was out of the ordinary. I don't have that feeling, Fon, Thesic said seriously. I see it as a tribute. I'm starting to think it's fun, Shanra whispered with a smothered giggle. Me too, said Hanra. Don't they look silly? They do indeed, Fonrar said coldly. Quickening her pace, she caught up with Kressel, who was marching ahead of them. Fonrar knew she was wasting her time, but she had to ask. Kressel, she said, we can't stay cooped up in that shed all day. We'll go out of our minds with boredom. Let us work. We can help set up the camp. Please. Kressel was already shaking his head. We can't do any of the skilled labor, of course, Fonrar continued, pleading, but we're strong, especially the Sivaks, and we can all dig trenches. And the Baas are wonderful organizers. They like nothing better than to stack and sort, catalog and count. They could have the supply wagons emptied out and everything stowed away in proper order before the commander wakes for breakfast. Please, Kressel, let us do something to make ourselves useful. You know I can't, Fawn, Kressel said, and he sounded truly sorry. Look at those numbskulls. He gestured to the gawking draconians. If you were on work detail, this lot would be hanging around, staring and getting in the way, and who knows what might happen. I'm sorry, Fawn, but it's only for today. The men are working on your quarters first thing. Commander's orders. Just be patient, will you? I guess we don't have much choice, Fonrar snapped. 
She knew she shouldn't take out her irritation on Cressel. This wasn't his fault. But he happened to be the only one in range. Can you at least bring us some boards, nails, and a hammer, she asked coldly, so we can plug up those knot holes? Sure, Fawn, he said, glad to be able to say yes to something. I'll have them sent over with breakfast. Our quarters, Fonrar thought, falling back to walk with the others. They're working on our quarters, which means they're working on another prison, this one with thicker walls and a better lock on the door. I've had all I can take. I won't be coddled and doddled any longer. I'll show them. Show them what? Thessic asked, and Fonrar realized she'd been muttering out loud. Whatever we can, whenever we can, Fonrar vowed. We just need to be ready. Pausing before they were all herded back into the storage shed, she looked around at the others. Are you with me? We're with you, Commander, said Shanra and Hanra with simultaneous giggles. The Bars are with you, ma'am, said Riel. I'm definitely with you, Fawn, said Thezik with a smile. The others will be, too. What do we do? Shanra asked softly, her eyes alight with eager mischief. Fonrar glanced back to make certain no guards were in earshot. I've made a decision, she said. A decision I should have made a long time ago. Chapter 8 Cressel was as good as his word. Along with breakfast, he brought boards, nails, and hammers. A worried Gloth accompanied him. Are you girls sure you don't want us to do this? The commander says that we can't spare the men yet, but I'm certain that by this afternoon... We don't want to be gawked at all morning, sir, and we're perfectly capable of hammering a nail in a board, Fonrar added. She stood in the doorway, blocking entry with her body. But you might smash your finger, Gloth said anxiously, or break a claw... We'll be careful, sir. Thank you for your concern, Fonrar said, and slammed the door on him. For once the sound of the key turning in the lock was reassuring. She turned around to find that the efficient and well-organized Boz were distributing the hammers, counting out the nails, and beginning to mount the boards in position. At Fonrar's nod the hammering began, and within minutes every single knothole was covered. Is everyone all right in there? Gloth demanded. Yes, sir, said Fonrar. Except for the loss of one eye, sir. What? Gloth wailed. I'm kidding, sir, Fonrar said. I'll want the hammers back, Gloth said angrily. And the nails. Glancing over her shoulder, Fonrar twitched one nostril. The others understood. Gloth turned the key, opened the door. Here, sir, said Fonrar handing him two hammers and a batch of nails. Where's the rest? Gloth demanded. Here, here, the boss gathered around, thrusting hammers at him from left and right. I'll help hold these, sir, said one, taking a hammer from Gloth and handing him two others in its place. Let me help, cried another, and took that hammer from Gloth and gave him three more. Gloth juggled hammers, nearly dropping one on his foot. Turning his head, he shouted for Cressel to come assist him. At that point, one of the Boz accidentally dumped all the nails onto the floor, resulting in a mad scramble to collect them. Gloth fumed and fussed and handed over hammers to his assistant. 
This is why you females shouldn't be trusted with tools, he said, shaking a finger. We're sorry, sir, said Fonrar meekly. Gloth stomped off, grumbling, no doubt going to complain about them to Commander Kang. Let him, Fonrar decided. She had an earful to give the commander anyway. Not that he ever took time to listen to her. She put him out of her mind, straightened her back. They had work to do. Now that the knotholes were covered and no one could see inside, Fonrar took her place in the center of the shed and motioned her troops to gather around her. All right. What's the news? she asked. Anyone hear anything? One of the Kapaks rose to her feet. Yes, Commander. I overheard Slith telling Kressel last night that Commander Kang told him that according to the General, the goblins weren't driven off. They're regrouping, and the Commander expects them to attack the fort. Not right away, but soon. Fonrar nodded. Good work, Cassie. Anyone else hear anything? One of the Bozaks raised her hand. I heard Gloth tell Folk that Slith told him that we were going to stay around here just long enough to help them rebuild and whip the gobos, and then we're moving on to Tear as the commander planned. Well done, Ogla. Anything else to report? Nothing? Fonrar looked to the Ba's draconians. How's our supplies? Riel reached into a bedroll, withdrew a piece of flat stone on which she'd made notations, and stood up to report. We had a good haul yesterday, ma'am. The mail stowed all the armor and weapons from the dead in the supply wagons, and so we were able to add quite a bit to our stash. We have harnesses and dirks enough for everyone now, and almost enough helms, though two of them are badly battered and will require work to repair. We are still short on swords. The males took the good ones for themselves, but we managed to snag one that has a notched blade and two goblin swords for a total of ten. We have one battle-axe with a cracked handle and four hammers newly acquired, Riel grinned, showing her teeth and resumed her seat. We have to have more weapons, said Fonrar. That will be our first priority. We can't do much about it while we're cooped up in this damn shed, but once we have our own private quarters, we'll be able to resume foraging. With all the draconians in this fort and all the weapons lying about, it should be simple for the Sivaks to slip out and pick up what we need. Why do the Sivaks get to go all the time? One of the Bozaks complained, particularly offended by Shanra's smirk of triumph at being allowed to go into the fort. Why can't one of us go? Because, for some reason, the Sivaks can walk about among the males and no one pays them the least bit of attention, Fonra replied. And it only seems to work for Sivaks. The one time I tried it, Gloth spotted me immediately. I had to do fifty push-ups. Besides, I'm going to want you Bozaks to work on your magic. Now it was the Bozaks' turn to smirk, and the Sivaks' turn to soak. This resulted in some good-natured shoving and jibing, giggles and laughter. Fonrar watched them, let them be children for a moment longer. When she next spoke, their childhood would end, as hers had ended out in that canyon, when she had realized that for the first time she had been on her own, with no males around to protect her. Listen up, all of you, Fonrar said, her tone sharp. This isn't playtime. Not anymore. The females ceased their antics, looked at her in astonishment, startled at her tone. I've made a decision, Fonrar said. We're going to start military training. With the commander? Hanrar asked excitedly. No, 
said Fonrar, shaking her head. The commander won't teach us. We have to face that fact. We're going to start training on our own. The females watched her, eyes wide. They understood the import of what she was saying, understood that from this moment on, their lives would never be the same. None of the males will teach us, Fonrar continued bitterly. They think they have to take care of us like they did when we were little. That was fine when we couldn't take care of ourselves. Someone had to watch over us just like someone watched over the males when they were little. But that ends now, today. She looked around at her troops. Fesik was grave, serious. Shanra and Hanra exchanged glances and moved closer together. Some of the Ba's lowered their heads. I understand how you feel, said Fonrar, her tone softening. This is frightening. I'm scared myself. But this is a step we have to take. Do you realize how close we came to dying out there? If the males had all been killed, what would have happened then? The gobbos would have come for us next, and we could do nothing to defend ourselves. Nothing. What made you decide this, Farn? Thesic asked. It was when you and I were out there in that canyon, Fonrar answered. We had no weapons and no training to use weapons even if we'd had them. We were lucky. Damned lucky, Fonrar emphasized. Lucky that we ran into more of our own kind. That could have easily been a patrol of Hobbs out there, and then neither Thess nor I would be here today. None of us would. We would all be dead. You heard Cassie's report. You heard that the goblins are regrouping. They're going to attack again, this time in greater numbers. We have to be ready to defend ourselves. We can't count on the males being around all the time to keep us safe, and so each of us should be ready to face any challenge that might come. Are you with me? The males would have answered with a rousing shout. The females could not. A shout would have brought Kressel inside to see what was going on. Yes, Fawn, they said softly. One by one, said Fonrar, each of you say it back to me. I'm with you, Fawn, said Thesik. I'm with you, Fawn, said Shanra and Hanra together. One by one the others gave their affirmation. So, Fonrar continued when all had replied, no more fun and games, this is for real, but we're going to keep our training secret. We don't want to worry the commander, she emphasized. He's got enough on his mind. Agreed? All nodded solemnly. Good. Now, orders for the day. I will lead the Ba's and Kapax in sword drill. We don't have room enough in here to use weapons. I don't want to skewer anyone, but we'll make do as best we can. You Bozaks, I want you to practice your magic spells. You better not cast any fire spells inside this shed but you can practice some of the less incendiary. You Sivaks start turning those extra boards into wooden swords for future drills. And Hanra stole that damn rabbit pelt. I don't want to see it again, ever. Hanra and Shanra exchanged glances. This was a new Fonrar, a serious Fonrar, a Fonrar who wasn't going to put up with any nonsense. Hanra stuffed the contentious pelt in her bedroll. Shanra who would have ordinarily offered an argument, kept her mouth shut. The Ba's and Kapax began clearing out a space that they could use for the drill. Let me know when you're ready, Fonrar said to Riel, who nodded. Fonrar pried loose one of the nails on a board and peeped out the knot hole. 
A few draconian males still lingered, hoping to get a glimpse of the females, but most had departed. Either they had assigned duties to perform, or they had decided that the females weren't all that interesting. From her vantage point, she could see their own troops working busily to construct the temporary quarters. She tried to spot Commander Kang among them, but couldn't find him. She hoped his wounds weren't troubling him. Some Kapak spit would have cured him right up. The females had discovered that the saliva from the Kapak females could heal wounds quite miraculously. They'd found out accidentally, when one of the Kapaks had been playing too near the fire, after being told not to, and had badly burned her hand. Fearing she would get into trouble, she'd hidden the fact that she was hurt from the males. She'd licked the wound to ease the pain and was amazed to see the burn immediately heal. Since then, when the females were hurt, they used Kapak spit to mend the cuts, scrapes, burns, or wounds. Fonrar had tried to tell this to Slith, but the Sivak had said sternly that the commander wasn't to be bothered. His wounds are bad enough, Slith had said. You're not going to make him worse by slobbering on him. What do you want me to do, Fawn? Thessic asked, coming to stand beside her. You didn't give me any orders. Fonrar couldn't explain why, but she found it difficult giving Thessic orders. You could practice your magic spells, Fonrar suggested. Thessic shrugged. I really don't need to practice. The magic's all so easy. She wasn't bragging, merely stating a fact. I've memorized all the spells the Bozak males taught the others. From the very first day I could cast them perfectly. Thanks to one of them I can make you believe you're seeing anything I want you to see. It's lots of fun. I was thinking of trying it on Gloth. You know how terrified he is of snakes. Anyhow, Gwelp said that I could probably learn really difficult spells. Male oracs are powerful magic users, seemingly, but I'd need someone to teach me. Thessic eyed her friend. You could practice your magic, Fawn. I'd be glad to help. Fonrar shook her head. No thanks, Thess. But you really should, Thessic argued. You might need to use magic someday. It could save your life. Commander Kang doesn't rely on magic. Fonrar said. She put her eye back to the knothole, hoping to see him. But he used to use magic, Thessic said. Gwelp told me so. He told me how the commander would pray to the Dark Queen for his spells before battle, and how he used them more than once to save himself and his men. He prayed to the Dark Queen, Fonrar responded, turning from the knothole. When she left, his magic left with her. That's why he doesn't use it, Thess. The magic was part of his faith, and now that his faith and trust in the queen are gone, so is his magic. But it's not, Thessic argued. The other Bozaks thought that too, but then they found out they can still cast magic spells. And not one of them has ever told the commander, Fonrar said gravely. Right? Thessic didn't answer. Right, Fonra repeated gently. Thessic gave a shrug. Yes, you're right. They haven't told him because they know it would hurt him, Thess. That's how I feel. 
I know it would hurt him, so I'll never use the magic. Never. But you let the Bozak males teach it to the others, Thessic felt called upon to point out. Because, as you said, it might save their lives some day. Thessic regarded her friend in exasperation. I give up. You're every bit as stubborn as the commander. Thank you, Fonrar smiled, pleased with the compliment. Riel saluted. Troops ready, Fon. Fonrar looked back, saw the Baas all standing at attention in the first row, as they'd seen the males. The Kapak stood at attention in the second row. Very good, Riel, Fonrar said. Take your place. Fonrar walked up to the front of her troops, turned to face them. She stood at attention in front of them. Now, when I give the command, draw, I want each of you to drop your right hand to your left side, wait for a count of three, then draw your sword and hold it in front of you. She took hold of one of the Baz's swords, demonstrated the move, then gave the sword back. Right, you know what it looks like. Now we try it. Fonrar took a step back. Squad, draw. The females reached for their swords. After considerable fumbling, they eventually managed to draw their weapons, and most hung on to them. Fonrar shook her head. No, no, together. We draw together. This time, we're going to try it with everyone calling out the time. When I say draw, you drop your hand to the hilt and say one. Then you wait. Count two, three, and then draw your sword and say one. You perform actions on the count of one and prepare your actions on the twos, threes. Got it? Some nodded, others did not. Von Rahr kept them at it for two hours non-stop, first with the draw and then with the thrust. At first she had been worried about the noise they were making, Claws scraping on the hard-packed dirt floor, wings rustling, swords clattering, the females grunting with exertion. But the daily business of the fort apparently masked the sounds the females were making, for no one bothered them. Drill continued. The draconian engineers had chosen as the site for their temporary quarters the charred and blackened spot where the field hospital had once stood. The draconians in the fort had kept meaning to clear away the debris and rebuild, but somehow never managed to find the time to get around to it. They had even cut and stacked the logs, but nothing had been done after that. Kang wisely kept to himself what he thought of such slovenly and slipshod behavior. Had he been in command, cleanup and rebuilding would have been started before the debris was cool to the touch. As it was, he said that undoubtedly the Draconians had more important matters to attend to. Prokel agreed, though he seemed to be at a loss as to what these might be. Prokel's procrastination proved to be a blessing for Kang. The supply of logs was already on hand, and the wood was well seasoned. He drew up plans for an H-shaped structure that would be quick to build and suitable for their needs. One vertical side of the H would be barracks for the troops, the other officers' quarters. The horizontal bar would be the common area with the mess hall. He added a separate building off the horizontal bar for the females. While Kang and Fulkth drew up the architectural plans, Slith and the officers had the men clear away the debris and clean up the building site. 
They had to halt briefly to deal with the crisis created by the Fort's draconian males mobbing the area to gawk at the females. An irate Kang sent a respectful but firmly worded request to General Moranta, asking for help in dealing with the situation. Soon the Queen's own arrived, and the other draconians disappeared like so many rats racing back to their holes. Vertax came around to Kang's tent to offer his apologies and assurances that nothing like this would occur again. The boys were just curious to see the females. You can't blame them, really, Vertax added defensively, having taken a quick peek himself. Most of us had no idea that female draconians even existed. Now that we've seen them, I've no doubt that will put an end to the curiosity. After all, the females don't look any different from us, do they? He sounded disappointed. They smell better, Kang said dryly. They do? Vertax was perplexed. Never mind. Kang went back to his drawing. Vertax bent over the half-finished plans. Is this what you're building? A simple design, Kang said, but adequate for temporary quarters. Temporary, Vertex repeated, smiling. Oh, yes, right. He walked out, chuckling. Damn right there, temporary, Kang said with a growl, but only after he was certain Vertex had departed. After the fiasco with the gawkers, Kang was now even more convinced that the moment the goblins were disposed of, he would leave the fort, continue to pursue his dream. He was putting the finishing touches on the drawing when he was interrupted by Gloth. Sir, Gloth began, it's about the females. What about them? Kang reared his head. His hand jerked, adding a line he'd not intended. What happened? What's wrong? They don't respect me, sir, Gloth said in a whining tone. Not like they ought. I think you should have a talk with them. Oh, for the love of Kang began, glaring at Gloth impatiently. Do you mean to tell me that you interrupted? He paused, counted to ten, then said, Answer me this. Are the females safe? Secure? Yes, sir, Gloth said. Fine. Now get the hell out of here and leave me alone, Kang roared. Gloth slunk off. Kang muttered imprecations on the unfortunate Draco's head and rubbed out his mistake. He had the plans completed by the time his troops had the construction site cleared, the logs in place, ready to start. Kang and Slith went over the plans with Paul Lard, the Bozak smithy, made a few changes and improvements. Slith started everyone to work. We'll have it up by tomorrow, sir, Slith said. Excellent, Kang replied. The females are getting restless. 